we all, I know I do, tend to fall off one side of the horse or another, right? Uh, that's a phrase made uh, popular by Martin Luther and probably others, um, right? So, you know, we're, where is it, February 26th, so into the new year, New Year's resolutions have probably faded off by now, right? So it's either no diet or the starvation diet, right? And uh, whatever you probably resolve to do, I mean, unless you're not me, I guess, then you probably, things have probably fallen off a little bit uh, come the end of February, right? Um, emotionally, you know, we swing from, ah, oh, this day's amazing, beautiful day, beautiful weather, to in traffic, this is the worst day of the world, right? So frustrating. Welcome to New Jersey, right? Um, you know, we can even more seriously, we could dr- judge a group of people, right, by, uh, being all good and those people are amazing or this group is all bad, right? We can, in our Christian faith, we can be all about a strict obedience that so we need to follow the letter of the law, but then, and we're, we're killing it and we're doing good and all of a sudden we give up and like, you know what, it doesn't matter. It's all grace, it's okay, everything's fine, you know? We could fall off that side and not worry about rules and obedience. And so that specifically, I think, is Jesus' concern, one of them, in our passage today where Jesus helps us strike this balance that's needed that we're going to see throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And that balance, what brings balance to us is wholeheartedness, is uh, this idea that we must follow God with all of ourselves. And that is made through God's work in us. As we look to the end of our chapter, another overwhelming phrase, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, really, in Pastor Josh is going to go through the rest of the chapter next week, so I'm not going to steal too much thunder. But the idea of, it's not moral perfection, but it's wholeness. Wholeness, wholeheartedness. Be whole, be complete, be mature. Jesus wants all of you, not just your obedience. And so, I'm going to give you the big uh, idea of our passage before we jump in. We'll revisit it throughout. But Jesus affirms the law through fulfilling the law. And he calls us to wholehearted obedience. Say it again. Jesus affirms the law through fulfilling the law and then calls us to wholehearted obedience. The law is good. He fulfills the law, affirming that it's good, affirming that obedience is good, but he calls us to wholeheartedness. So we'll come to verse 17 here. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So we see right off the bat that Jesus is seeking to to correct their thinking before he even gets started here, right? Given the controversial nature of the next few chapters, the next few verses where he's saying, remember, you've heard it said in the law or in your oral tradition, but I'm saying to you, someone might come and say, Jesus is just trashing the law. Like Jesus is done with it. He's starting something new and revolutionary, And so um, it may give off that appearance that he's abolishing the law and the prophets starting over. Um, But that's actually not further from the truth. Jesus' purpose in coming was to fulfill the law and the prophets. His coming, he says, I have come, come from heaven, right? His advent, his incarnation, the purpose, one of the purposes was to fulfill the law and the prophets. So before we get into that idea that's just loaded about fulfillment, I want to talk about what does he say here about the law and the prophets? What are the law and the prophets? It's a little bit different than our concept of, of law. When we think of law, you know, we usually think of ethical things that come to mind. And so 
When someone comes and said, hey, I fulfilled the law of the great state of New Jersey today, you might think, okay, um, do you abide by the speed limit? Like you obeyed? What, what, was that? what was that, right? We think of legal obedience probably when we think of law. When someone says, I fulfilled the law. But with the, in that time, in the, the word law actually meant Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, right? For that Jewish audience, the first five books of the Old Testament. So when Jesus is saying, I came to fulfill the law, we'll get to the prophets in a second, but the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. How do you fulfill Genesis, right? It's a story. How do you fulfill the first half of Exodus? It's a story. Exodus 20 starts with 10 commandments, and, and then we're off running with law and commands all through Leviticus. Numbers, what's numbers? It's numbers, right? It's like, it's genealogies. How do you fulfill that? And there's some commands in there, the story in there. Deuteronomy is the covenant code for the Israelites, right? It is a lot of law and a lot of, there's also um, story in Deuteronomy as well. So in a nutshell, uh, we have a narrative of the people of God in relationship with God and their covenant defines that relationship in the first five books of the, the Old Testament. I'll condense into the English word in our translation law. And then it says the prophets. And for them, it's not just like Isaiah, it's everything else. So it's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all the way through, in the order's different, but it's the same books all the way through Malachi, right? So all the history books, all the poetry, law and prophets includes the entire Old Testament. So the prophets are the interpretation of the first five books, right? You have the first five books laying out the, the narrative of the Israelite people and the laws and the covenant relationship they were to have. The prophets are the explanation, the interpretation, and the calling back to obey that. Okay, so Jesus is, call, is saying, I fulfilled all of that. That's what Jesus is saying when he said he'd come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So now we need to know what fulfillment means. And this is another loaded term. And it is um, used in Matthew, I think, 16 times. And it's a big theme in Matthew. Ten of those times are specifically used in this way. Um, signifies that that which scripture points towards Right, either directly through like a, a prediction, like a predictive prophecy, or through a pattern or what we might call a type um, that's fulfilled and finds its culmination in Jesus as like a pattern. So it's a huge theme in Matthew. If you look at the past few chapters, like I just flip a, a page over to Matthew 122, Jesus' birth fulfills the Emmanuel prophecy. We think of that as like a prediction, right? Um, you know, and, uh, but that's not all that's there, right? In chapter 2, Matthew says Jesus' story fulfills a verse when he goes down to Egypt. It fulfills a verse in Hosea, and that verse isn't a predictive prophecy. Hosea is just saying, out of, God said, out of Egypt I called my son, but he goes on and said, the more I called him, the more he didn't obey. So Jesus' story is a different story than the old failed son, namely Israel, in the Old Testament. Right? So that's a sort of fulfillment. And then you have this confusing fulfillment of Jesus being in Nazarene when that's not an exact prophecy prediction in the Old Testament. Um, the biggest one, one of the biggest ones is in 3.15 when Jesus is baptism and he says, I have come to fulfill all righteousness. Telling John, hey, let me be baptized. This is for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's indicating he's bringing about God's redemptive plan. If you flip over to Matthew 4, 14, we see that we have Jesus preaching in Galilee, and that preaching is a fulfillment of Isaiah's promise about light dawning in the darkness. And there's so many more scattered throughout Matthew, but 
Um, but that's the, just the first few chapters, and we can summarize it in this way, this way right? And I'm just going to blow through it. Uh, so this is what a Jewish audience, is what an original audience would have kind of heard as they read the first few chapters of Matthew, right? You, over the opening phrase, an account, which is really the word Genesis in Greek, the, gene, the genesis of Joshua, which means Yahweh saves, the Messiah, the son of David, who had the covenant with God that he would have an eternal throne, the son of Abraham, who was promised a land and a seed and a blessing. That Jesus, that Messiah, right, he has come and he has come to save his people from their sins, to bring them out of exile, of sin. And that son went down to Egypt, ironically, for safety, because the Holy Land, Israel, wasn't safe. Egypt was. And coming out of Egypt, he was the faithful son who passed through the waters of baptism, like Israel passed through the Reed Sea. When he entered the wilderness for 40 days, he didn't fail like Israel failed in 40 years in their wilderness wanderings. He didn't fail face-to-face temptation with Satan like Israel failed in their temptations and how Adam and Eve failed in their face-to-face temptation with Satan under good circumstances. Jesus was in the desert starving for 40 days, and he was victorious. He didn't have to live on bread alone. He did not put the Lord, his God, to the test. He did not worship another God. Those are the three quotes from Deuteronomy that, is, that Jesus quotes to Satan, all about when Israel didn't do any of those things, right? And then he ascends a mountain, like Pastor Ryan pointed out. Prophetically ascends a mountain like Moses and prophetically opens his mouth. What's the first word out of his mouth? It's blessed. This guy's different. It's new. And yet the story is so similar, so familiar. It's so much better. You know what the last word of prophecy is in the Old Testament? Malachi, the last word of Malachi? Curse. First word out of Jesus' mouth, blessed. It's a different story, similar story, a better story. This is fulfillment, friends. This guy is doing it. He is fulfilling all righteousness. So fulfillment is so much more than ethics. It's so much more than just doing the right thing. And it's also more than prediction. So like it's not, we think of fulfillment maybe, um, you'd use a baseball analogy, right? Because everybody knows it's American sport, right? You know, the Old Testament guy cracking one out to center field and the New Testament guy's like, yeah, I got it, boom. Like fulfillment, like pro- prediction, prophecy, boom. It's way more than that, right? And we could think of it just this straight line. It's the whole story of the Old Testament. The whole thing is being fulfilled in Christ. And this is what Matthew's just brilliantly laying out for us. So Jesus is saying, far from wanting to set aside the Old Testament, not setting it aside, it's my role to bring into being that which it's pointed, was pointing forward to, to carry the law and the prophets into a new era of fulfillment. And in that new era, the authority of the law and prophets is still the same. It's still scripture. But the role is going to be different now that the fulfiller has come. The fulfiller of the law, not the law, is the ultimate authority. And he has the authority, as we'll see the next few weeks, to give their right and deeper interpretation and really take them then to their ultimate destination, what they're for ultimately, what it is for. So the law and prophets pointed toward a time of fulfillment. And since they needed to be fulfilled, 
they were provisional, provisional until the actual fulfiller, Jesus, the Messiah, comes. But they're always going to matter. It's always important. It doesn't, it's not discarded. It's still part of Scripture. It's still valuable, as we see in verse 18. Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So Jesus starts, excuse me, <clears throat> verse 18, beginning, truly I tell you, which really is amen, right? The thing we throw around after prayers, um, at the end of things, usually is at the end of things. Jesus, throughout all the Gospels, he begins with truly or amen, right? Um, which is saying, what I'm about to say is authoritative, right? What are the Old Testament, they say, uh, this, it is written, the prophets might say, thus says the Lord, it is written. Jesus says, I say to you, right? That's why people are stunned at the Sermon on the Mount. At the end, they're like, yeah, his teaching's crazy, but also he has authority at the end of chapter 7. Like, his authority is astounding, that what he's claiming Jesus says, truly I say to you, it's his teaching is, is with authority and he carries that weight of the fulfiller of the law, speaking the truth. And here he says that Torah, law, will not pass away at all until the end of time. It will always matter. And that, you know, in the KJV, right, uh, jot or tittle, right, we love, we love talking about jots and tittles, right? Uh, it, that's the translation, if you're unaware. Um, jot or this in, in the CSB has the smallest letter, which is yod, which is basically like a little apostrophe. And then the uh, stroke of a letter is like a, it's like a serif, you know, like sans serif font is all flat and Times New Roman has little things on the, on the end that make it a little more decorative. Um, well, in Hebrew, if you don't have that little serif, it, it's the difference between a letter um, or, or like a, a letter C and a letter B. It's a, it's a big deal. And Jesus is saying all those things are important. It's all important. Um, Torah will not pass away. But then he says, it won't pass away until all is accomplished. I was like, okay, which is it, right? Um, what, does, what does all is accomplished mean? Um, so if you have these two conditions that are different, like it's until the end of the world or until I complete my mission, um, which one wins out? All right, what, is he, what is he doing here? And I, I probably won't be able to answer all your questions about this just up front, okay? Um, I think it could be summarized this way, this way, that the law, down to the littlest detail, will never lose significance. It is permanent as heaven and earth. However, all that it points to, right, going back to verse 17, which is Jesus, all that it points to will become reality in my ministry, my life, my death, my resurrection. So that first statement, I think, is just stating that it's never can be altered, and Jesus isn't chucking the law out, right? But the second statement, the until, there's two until statements there, right? That's what we're talking about. The second saying, it's fulfillment in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So it's not abandonment, but what's the goal? What's the goal of the law now that this new era has been brought in by Jesus? And that's what we're going to see next week in 21 to 47 of chapter 5, just illustrate how the law functions in this um, new situation in which they serve. Um, not as simple rules, but as pointers towards the greater righteousness that Jesus is going to teach about and bring in. And it supersedes that old kind of law-keeping that the Pharisees were, were doing. So, again, just to summarize, the Mosaic Covenant is unalterable, right? It's, it's Scripture. 
um, but it doesn't justify applying it beyond uh, what its purpose was. Right? And, and Paul talks about its purpose is to point to Christ, right? The purpose of the law was uh, to drive us to Christ, to point out our sin in Romans 7, right? There, um, there's a purpose for the law, and so there's, you don't ap- apply it beyond the purpose for, what, for which it was intended. And so we're going to see in the rest of the chapter, rest of the Gospel of Matthew, um, in 2435, he has a similar statement. Christ's words have the authority. Um, and he says, heaven and earth will pass away. S- similar statement. But my words will never pass away. There's a difference, right? Similar to our passage, but instead of Torah or law, outlasting heaven and earth. It's Jesus's words that will never pass away. And so we have to, again, we can't miss the the forest for the trees here as we work. This passage is like a condensation of so much. And so it can go so many different directions. And so if we only focus on these four verses, we we might get a little confused. We have to be able to read broadly in in the gospel, understand what what he's getting at. And so the commands of the law are very important. <clears throat> Excuse me, um, because they um, because of how they function as the word of God, but they're fulfilled in Christ, and thus they're not to be taken lightly. The, the scripture is not to be taken lightly. It's not just something you discard. And so, if we keep reading, we're going to see verse nineteen. We we'll read there. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least. Uh, lost my place here. We got least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there was um, this is confusing in many ways, right? Let's break it down, right? In, in, in that time, there were weightier parts of the law in rabbinic teaching and lighter parts of the law. But Jesus is saying, actually, you got to keep and teach all of it, um, not ignore any of it. And uh, it reminds me of Galatians 3.10, which says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. It is all, you have to keep all of it. Now it's clear, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. So in other words, like you're either part of the old covenant or you're not. You're either not part of anything or you're part of the new covenant, right? But it's, you're either part of the old covenant or you're not. Every part is important. Not to, not, you can't pick and choose, Jesus is saying. And there's many ways we can do this, right? Like, you know, picking and choosing from the Old Testament. We do it all the time. I don't like tattoos, but I really like shellfish and pig, you know, <laughs> and eating bugs or whatever, right? But, but I don't like tattoos and I don't, I don't, you know, like we can pick and choose. Jesus is like, no, <clears throat> you're either part of the old covenant or you're not. Um, and, and it's, it's uh, the other, other way this shows up, you might hear these categories, moral, civil, ceremonial, law. So like the moral law is the same, um, and, but the civil ceremonial, which is like all the holidays and all the food stuff, that doesn't carry through, but the moral does. And I think I understand where that's getting because Jesus does sort of take the morality of it and elevate it a little bit. But I, I would suggest that it's all one package, and uh, Jesus elevates the whole thing, and it all finds fulfillment in him. It all finds fulfillment in him. And so the whole Old Testament matters, but we have to abide by it as interpreted and understood, fulfilled in Jesus. And again, what he's saying is bringing something to completion, to fulfillment, isn't abolishing. It's actually 
uh, affirming it, right? It's actually saying it's good. It's actually bringing it all together. The word for abolish, the root word is loosen. And he's not loosening it and destroying it and disintegrating, right? He's actually tying it all together, bringing it all to completion. Um, And so fulfilling the law highlights the continuity of the whole story. We need the whole story to really appreciate its beauty and importance and truth. But the one who fulfills the law is the center of the attention, not the, the thing he came to fulfill. Like it's, it's like, you're, it's like you uh, set up your tent at a sign that says, campground, 100 miles, and you're like camping by the sign. It's like the sign isn't the destination, right? That's weird. It's just like, go to the campground. That's the whole point, right? The destination is more important than the sign. It's the whole old covenant comes to completion, fulfillment in Jesus not bits and pieces. So um, we have to take the whole thing seriously as fulfilled and in the teaching that he um, is talking about, right? And so if we don't do that, we don't give glory to Christ as the fulfiller, right? And we might, might want to do Jesus a break by cutting things out, but that's not giving glory to him as the fulfiller of the whole entire law. And, uh, and he says, you're going to be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. What's that mean? <laughs> right? What does that mean? Well, um, so Jesus can't be saying something that is there's tears in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because there's so many other places where he says that's not true. I think of the, the um, in Matthew chapter 20, the workers that come late, right? They only work an hour and the other dudes have been there the whole day and, and they all get paid the same. And, and the guys in, with the one hour are like, oh man, check this out. And the, the guys from that have been working all day are like, are you kidding me? Jesus is saying, no, it's all the same. The least will be greatest. It's all, all the same. And so it can't be that. Um, so, so what is he getting at? And I think what he could mean here is that being greater or lesser representative is in the kingdom of heaven is a greater or lesser representative of the king. Right? The more, if you're faithful in giving Christ glory for fulfilling the law, following his commands as interpreted, the law as interpreted by Jesus, very important qualifier, following the law as interpreted by Jesus and teach others and disciple others in light of Jesus' teaching as the fulfiller, then you are a good representative of the king. Okay? You are a good representative of the king and vice versa. So if you don't do that, you're not representing the king well. And I think that's the furthest I'm willing to take that. I think that's... that's, that's a, so if you have more questions, sorry. Uh, we talk about it later. So... Uh, but I think that's as far as, you know, as, as far as we can take that. Um, so before we get into the kind of the bomb, that is verse 20, we need to talk about why this matters, right? Um, there, there is a sense in which our hearts, this is the one thing Jesus is addressing here. Don't think that the law doesn't matter. Don't think that obedience matters. And that's kind of the version of Jesus that is often prevalent in the culture and, and, and even in our hearts, right? If we're honest, right? The hippie Jesus, right? Don't, yeah, like all that obedience, holiness stuff is totally like BC, dude. Like, <laughs> just chill, just chill. All, you know, totally less millennium, right? Don't worry about it. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Just be cool and chill and get over it. No, that's not what he's saying. And that's not me. That's not representing me. Radical obedience is what we're called to. Um, and the law is important. It exposes sin. It drives us to Christ. The law points us to Christ. It is not to be discarded. Paul says, should we keep sinning so that grace would abound? No, of course not. And so the law matters, and and we have to ask ourselves, why are we so tempted 
to squeeze out from under the law and not come to Christ, right? Because that's the thing. We, it, it is a lot. It is overwhelming. We're going to read the next uh, 20 some verses next week. It's, it's a lot. Like it's overwhelming. What do you do with that, right? Do you try to squeeze out from under it, um, ignore it, deny it, suppress it, try to escape? Or do you come to Christ and ask, God, I need a new heart. It's what you've promised and you're calling me to it. So would you give it to me in faith, right? It's important. We don't sin so that grace would abound. The law is important. Obedience is important. So, but given these three verses, we can also fall off the other side. We can think that radical adherence to the law will get us into the kingdom. Now, the Pharisees are probably listening to these three verses. They're like, oh yeah, keep going, right? But the last verse in our passage says the exact opposite. Right? Radical, um, simple adherence to the principles and uh, to the statutes without wholeheartedness is the exact thing that disqualifies you from the kingdom, Jesus says. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And that is disturbing. It's uncomfortable. Some of you are like, Dude, I brought a friend today. Like, would you chill? <laughs> thought this was a nice place. Yeah, I mean, I'm just reading what Jesus says. I mean, the Pharisees would have approved of 18 and 19. Yeah, every, everything, the law is eternal. You know, I don't know about the part about it passing away until all things take place, whatever you mean, but the, they, we, the Pharisees value the law, the meticulous keeping of the law, right? They did it. They were doing it, right? They, the, the people hearing this would have been so disturbed um, but the, because the Pharisees, uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible so aptly puts them the extra super holy people, you know? Uh, I love it. And that, that's uh, a kid Bible, but you know, I think it's accurate, right? And they, 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 um, they loved the Bible. They loved keeping it. They studied it all the time. They enforced it. They taught it. So the people hearing this, let's get in their shoes first, right? They would have been confused, discouraged, disturbed. The average person didn't have time to read the law. Many of the average people couldn't read. That's why they went to synagogue to hear. How in the world can I surpass that guy who can read, one, who studies, who teaches, who's dedicated his whole life? Like, what in the world? Uh, and I don't know what analogy works for you. You know, you have to fill in the blank. But like, it's like saying, you know, I have to write music um, better than Bach or Beethoven or whatever the kids listen to these days. It's so cool. You know, like it has to be better. Um, or maybe not even that. I think it's probably worse. Like, um, it's like going down to three to five-year-old class saying, hey, kids, you're not going to get your uh, goldfish today snack if you don't pass, exceed the grade of Dr. Ryan boys on this nerdy Hebrew exam. And then at the end, you have to quote verbatim your favorite dead theologian. Um, okay? You won't get a snack. Oh, turn it over. There's a map on the back. Yeah. You have to, yeah. Like, that, that, like, there's a stare, like, I don't, like, what? Right? It's impossible. Right? They can't do that. They can't even read. Like I said, it's overwhelming, Right? It's overwhelming. If, if the righteousness is head knowledge, acted out perfectly, 
as long as righteousness is understood in terms of strict adherence to just rules and externals, it's really overwhelming. But thankfully, that's not what righteousness is, according to Jesus. Going far beyond that righteousness seems impossible for the average Joe, right? Or was it? What about our average Joe in verse chapter 1? What does it say about him? Flip over to 118. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being what? Righteous. Righteous, Not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. He doesn't condemn Mary. He tries to keep her from experiencing shame. Reproach. Righteousness is portrayed not as justice, but mercy. I'm not sure why this affects me, but it just does. His actions accord with the righteousness of God. Showing mercy, not sacrifice. Not pursuing justice and vindictiveness. Mercy and love. In accordance with God's will, with God's character. 315. We already read it. Jesus said, I will fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' baptism was in accordance with God's nature, with God's will, with God's kingdom, his coming kingdom. That's really righteousness in in a nutshell in Gospel of Matthew. Wholehearted behavior that is in accordance with God's nature, his heart, who he is, his will, what his desires are, and his coming kingdom. Wholeheartedness in accordance with God's nature, his will, and his coming kingdom. That's how Matthew portrays Jesus talking about righteousness throughout his gospel. It only makes sense if the righteousness of Jesus calling into question is different from their understanding, right? He, you don't beat them at their own game, right? He's elevating the game. He's playing like 3D chess, and these dudes are just playing checkers on the floor. It's, it's way more. He's elevating it. To much more advanced altogether. Those who belong to this new reality under Jesus, the Messiah, the true fulfiller of the law, must move beyond this literal, literal observance of the rules to something new, a new consciousness and heart awareness of what it means to please God. Radical openness to knowing your need, knowing and doing the undying will of your Father in heaven. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is our prayer. That is it. So entering the kingdom of heaven, being under the rule of the king of heaven, means coming under God's rule and becoming one of those who recognize his kingships and seek to live to his standards of wholeheartedness, connection to him. To be God's true people is to be swept up into God's plan to bring heaven and earth together again. That's really what I think Matthew's getting at with kingdom of heaven. If you're Maybe paying attention, um, kingdom of heaven or heaven and earth is a word pair in Matthew. He uses a lot kingdom of heaven as opposed to kingdom of God. And people make some big deals like, oh, he's trying to like, not say God and be a good Jew and not say the name of God or whatever. It's not, I don't think it's a helpful explanation. It's really that I think theologians have pointed this out with Matthew's theology of seeing an Eden when heaven and earth were divorced, were broken apart. And, in, and then you get this vision of the, the Son of Man in Daniel 7 through 9. I can't get into all this. Bringing heaven back to earth. And Jesus is that one bringing heaven's rule to earth. And the kingdom of heaven become And like that's what new creation is. 
I think, so when you see kingdom of heaven, and it'll keep coming up, um, just be aware there's a rich theology of what Matthew's trying to do there with, with that, that phrase that, there. Um, but the rest of the chapters gives us insight, right? And Pastor Josh will talk about it next week, into what a kingdom citizen looks like. And Jesus is going to sort of exegete Torah in a way. And we'll get there next week. So um, Matthew portrays Jesus as interpreting this deeper meaning. Um, there's other places in Matthew we could talk about this, right? The deeper meaning of the law that, that is against the righteousness of the scribes. Um, I think I already talked about it. Hosea 6.6, 6, he mentions it twice in the gospel of Matthew, which is, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, right? Uh, chapter 12, he picks the grain of the Sabbath, and uh, on the Sabbath, and it's kind of a borderline thing. The Pharisees are like, oh, gotcha, what are you doing? Jesus is like, no. You know, the Sabbath was made for man. And, and, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of questions around that. But um, in chapter 15, 11, it's not what goes in that contaminates you. All the food laws and cleansing laws and washing hands and all that stuff. It's not what goes in that corrupts you. It's what comes out of your heart that corrupts you, right? And in, in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll get, again, we'll get there next week. Sorry, Josh, keep talking about it. But, uh, you know, the, the divorce laws, there's all these laws about divorce and Jesus saying, nope, elevating it, right? Uh, or oaths, don't take oaths at all, actually. I know those all laws about oaths, don't take them at all. Um, the one that kind of sticks out the most is verse 39 of chapter 5. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's quoted three times in Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And Jesus is saying, no, love your enemies, right? Like he's elevating this whole thing. He's getting after the heart and throughout the gospel, he just lays into the Pharisees for hardness of heart. That's why we can surpass that righteousness because their hearts are hard. Chapter 23 is like seven woes on the Pharisees. He just lights them up. Uh, Categories of woes pronounced on them for leading others astray in their performative religion. He calls them whitewashed tombs, right? Straining out a gnat, but gulping down a camel. The gnat being the little dill and cumin there, uh, tithing. But then they're not practicing justice and righteousness and love and mercy. This is the issue, right? The righteousness that needs to be exceeded is actually a heartless righteousness, where, quote unquote, righteousness, right? Where things look good on the outside, but there is just an abject failure to look inward. Abject failure to look inward at the heart, at the motivations, at the longings, at the desires, at that scary stuff that's a little bit out of control, the things that we're not really sure what to do with. But that's true righteousness, Jesus says. Looking in there, letting Jesus into that as the true king of your life. And I get it, it's terrifying to look inward, right? Emotions are in there. We're not allowed to talk about them, right? We're Christians. No, it's not true. Uh, Jesus knows it's terrifying, but welcomes us to take a look with him, to feel fully, because on the other side, there's connection with him. On the other side, there's blessing, right? On the other side. Bypassing our hearts is dangerous. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. And we can bypass our hearts two different ways. It's not really talked about here. The low way, the corrupt way that we think of as Christians is bypassing our hearts through numbing out, right? Addictions and all the things, that the vices that we, um, the vices, not devices, the vices that we talk about, like, you know, all the things that we're addicted to. You know them all, right? 
That's one way we bypass our hearts, choose not to feel, choose not to connect with God. But there's another way that we bypass our hearts. Religious performance, denial of what's really going on, of our longings, desires, emotions, needs that Jesus wants to be present to, wants to transform, wants to take over. You ever notice, and we we already went through the Beatitudes, so they're a little fresh. You notice how emotionally charged the Beatitudes are? Like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember, Dr. Adam Brown talked about poor and poverty of spirit being about repentance. What do you need to feel? Guilt. If you have a hard heart against guilt, you won't be, have poverty of spirit. And you won't get the blessing that comes with that. Guilt needs to be felt, right? Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Well, when you look at your heart, when you look at the terrible world we live in, right? You're going to mourn. And it's okay, because you're blessed. It's okay to be sad, because there's blessing and connection on the other side of that. Blessed are the humble. When you finally come home to who you really are, your true identity, as a human who's broken, who's also loved by God, right? You can't help but be humble, not be overwhelmed by toxic shame. Humility is healthy shame, acknowledging your limits, acknowledging your humanity, your brokenness. Yeah, I'm humbled. When it's toxic levels, it's, I'm a piece of junk, I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable, I'm a terrible piece of junk, blah, blah, blah. It goes off all that self-talk that's just poisonous and toxic. When we come home to who we are, we can actually experience true humility. And what what does he say? You inherit the earth. Your worth is the size of the earth, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm hearing anger. Healthy, godly anger towards the things that matter. Wholehearted pursuing of the things that are important. And you will what? Be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart. I mean, we can keep going. Only the pure people pursue righteousness. And when we have a new covenant heart promised to us, we can do that. Because of the gift of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 is just a huge required reading. Go read it. You know, I can't read it here. It's too long. But, um. If you're unfamiliar, but it's about God writing his commands in the new covenant. When Jesus fulfills the law, the old covenant, there's a new covenant. We went through Hebrews, whatever it was, 2020, right? Remember all that? There's a new covenant. God will write the law on your hearts and you will want to obey. He will transform your hearts. We can live out of our heart and follow Christ. And this call, it sounds overwhelming, but it's actually good news because Jesus wouldn't call us to something that doesn't exist. He's given us the new heart in Christ, in the new covenant. We can actually live out of that and follow him. So how do we know? It's a worthwhile question. How do you know if you have a hard heart? What what do I have to ask myself or what do I have to look for? And it's a good question. um, But looking for outward stuff probably isn't going to answer it because... It looks similar to obedience, right? And that, that's what's so tricky about it, right? On the outside, it looked the same. Pharisees, they were, um, they were the social and religious conservatives of the day. They were the good guys. I know in the Gospels, they're not, but in, their, you know, in, the, in the first century, Judaism, they were the good guys. They were the pinnacle, right? They loved the Bible, okay? They had hard hearts, according to Jesus. So someone with a hard heart, like theirs, would come to church. They would tithe, just like they did, right? They would serve. They would do all the things. They could look like a kid's volunteer, hospitality volunteer, 
youth member, youth worker, pastor. They refuse to look inward with Christ and instead numb out their heart and have a hard heart through service, through doing religious things, constantly trying to deny and suppress the, the heart and just work. And, and we talk about the, the lower pathway, you know, when we bypass our heart through addiction and we know that's all bad. This is just as poisonous. It is an addiction. It's addiction to certainty, to control, to knowing I'm good and I can control my behavior. And I can make it. And you can speak all the religious words that just paper over reality. Man, I, you know, I have an allergy. My biggest allergy um, is Christianese. It's on my chart in my doctor's office. It's a powerful drug. And I'm not, you know, so don't hear, like, your Christian statements you hang on to that are good and biblical, like, you can tell me them after church. I won't judge you, right? So that's okay. Um, but it's what they're used for and how we paper over with fake religious language our sinful hearts, the things that we're maybe not even sinful, just afraid to work through and deny. We deny our suffering. We deny reality. And when we do that, you can, we can lead ourselves astray and lead others astray. And that's dangerous. Jesus has a lot to say to the hard-hearted Pharisees who lead people astray with religious language. It's not good. Something like tie a boulder around your body and throw yourself into the ocean. It's not good. He's not happy about it. When we promote a delusion in ourselves that denies the realities of our heart, we can minimize suffering with Christianese. It's going to be okay. Whatever. Throw, throw things at it like that, right? We can focus on behavioralism in ourselves and in others. Sin hunting and providing a false hope that you just do this and you'll be fine. You'll do this and be transformed. And it's just like the Pharisees, just giving this. And I know, I know this is edgy. I know, you know, just, you know, trust that uh, I have a good intention with this. But we can be sent, telling this G-rated delusion of reality when there's the reality is R-rated hard. Suffering is real. Sin is real. Our hearts are hardened and our hearts are broken. We just send, talk about this delusion, man. And it's just, we just numb out on our service, numb out on substances, numb out to avoid the brokenness, to avoid the pain. God never gets invited in to do the deeper work. And it, we just avoid the pain and the sadness and the, the sin and all that stuff, and we just try to paper it over. But blessed are those who mourn. There is more for you than just religious performance and cheap spiritual platitudes that mask that ugliness. There's more. Jesus is saying there's more. That's why he says righteousness must exceed, he says exceed, more, overly exceed, the Greek there, this pharisaical righteousness that is cheap, it's unsatisfying, it's delusional. It's, if you think the delusion that you're peddling to yourself and to others is real, or others think it's real, and they can... They confuse the delusion of the pharisaical righteousness with the real faith. They walk away from the faith because it's this, they think the delusion and the fakeness is real faith. Or you might think that and you walk away. It's serious. It's serious. 
That's it. You will not get into the kingdom of heaven. Observance to the letter of the law, that leaves, it leaves us outside. If that is our way in, that we, we think if that's our way in. So, <clears throat> yeah. So where are you? Jesus is bouncing between these two extremes, right? He's bouncing between the anti-law, that we talked about already, and the Pharisaic keeping of the law to the last bit without any heart. And where do you fall in this spectrum? And Jesus has something to say to all of us in this, I think. And uh, he wants radical obedience from a transformed heart that is whole. And that's what, the end, again, at the end of chapter 5, be perfect, be whole. It's not moral perfection, it's wholeheartedness. We can want only obedience because that's easy and we can control our behavior, but there's no heart there or just feelings and laissez-faire Christianity with no structure, no guidance with, um, and, and listening to Jesus talk about radical obedience. So, um, frankly, when we ask ourselves our question, where are we, I think you just have to be aware of the, the, the self-deceit that says, oh yeah, I'm, the, I'm in the middle, I'm totally, I got it, got it nailed. Just ask someone who knows you really well. Maybe, um, maybe you can come out of that a little bit and have some. Uh, I, I know I need that uh, to keep asking my wife about that. But, you know, um, in our fallenness, we can constantly fall off either side. And then in our desperation to fix it, we climb over the other side of the horse and fall off the other side, right? Like that's, that can be our lives. But the balance, the thing that brings balance or the ballast, which is the thing that makes a ship go straight, like it's the wholehearted following of Christ, surrendering all of us to him. Everything, not just your behavior, right? Your story and your desires, your emotions, your obedience, your whole life, surrendering all of that to him. That's where we get wholeheartedness. And it's not something we can manufacture, so don't hear it as something where I, that's another thing I gotta check off, wholeheartedness. No, we need to ask for it from Christ. And he has promised to give it to us in the new covenant. It is a new covenant promise that he will uh, deliver for us. And I was asking my wife about this yesterday. And, <laughs> and uh, she just quipped, yeah, not all who obey Jesus are truly surrendered, but... All who surrender, obey. I was like, oh, okay. I'll take that to the bank. I'll keep you. Yeah, that's nice. I think she was quoting someone, you know, but, but uh, I think, you know, not all who obey are really surrendered. And not all who, but all who do surrender, obedience will follow. Wholeheartedness, it will follow as we surrender all of ourselves to Christ. And the good news as Jesus is called wholeheartedness, shows that it's available. He doesn't call us something that's far off or impossible. That the new covenant has come. He talks about that at the end of Matthew when he's breaking bread. This is the blood of the new, the, the new covenant in my blood. It has come. He can't offer us something that doesn't exist. It's come. He's come and it's free by faith. We lay aside our defenses, lay aside our pride, Open our hearts to him. All that scary stuff that we don't want to take a look at. Go with God with a trusted other and explore that. Explore what it means to be wholehearted. Explore what it means to be 
open, radically open to God and his transforming presence within us. We can't do it alone, and we need to ask for help. And so, again, to come back to the big idea, the first, the first part, Jesus affirms the law through fulfilling the law. He says it's good, fulfilling it. Jesus affirms the law through fulfilling the law. And so he calls us to wholehearted obedience. And it's possible. We're not going to be perfect. That's not what he's saying. It's possible to open your heart to follow Christ. Open yourself to the love of God. Not deny and surpass and seek to bypass our hearts. Seek to bypass it in all the ways we talked about. It's worth the risk to open yourself to God and his love. And uh, it, is not, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. So as we look through the next few chapters, right, um, take heart, right? Um, and Jesus calls us to something that he wants to walk with us through. So I encourage you to take that invitation from him. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we come before you, and I, I pray that um, you would comfort us where needed through your spirit, that you would convict us where needed through your spirit. You come in and heal the places of our hearts that need healing. That you would help us open ourselves to you. To not be overwhelmed by the staggeringly uh, high bar that, that seems impossible. Um, you've called us and you want to walk with us through this. And you have promised that we can have new hearts that follow you. And I pray that we would not disregard your commands for obedience out of an idea of fake grace. We also wouldn't overreact and seek this perfect obedience, trying to fulfill things that we can't fulfill. And so I, I just pray that you would give us wisdom as we consider these things. Give us uh, love. Help us to receive your compassion for us and our neediness so that we can wholeheartedly give it to others as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.